this week I was reading through the book of First Kings, and I was reading about the life of Saul. Now, if you'd have asked me before I reread the several chapters about King Saul, what was he like, I would have told you everything negative about Saul. I would have told you about the wrong things that he did. I would have told you about how he tried to kill David. I'll talk, tell you about how he sinned against, Lord, against God numerous times. I would have told you all these things that he did wrong. And truly, he did those things wrong. Saul is one of those characters in the Bible that's the good example of what not to do. Some of you might remember the story of King Saul. He was the first king of Israel up until that point. God was the king of Israel, but the people, the Israelites, they got jealous. They looked at other nations and they thought to themselves, I want to be like those nations. Those nations have actual physical kings, kings that are people, and we want a king like that. So they lamented before God and they told God their grief and they said, we want a king. So God did something unique. He actually gave them a king. See, there's nothing wrong about them asking for a king. There's nothing wrong to have a king. The problem was that the Israelites didn't realize that God was taking care of them just like a faithful king, that God had met every single one of their needs, that God had provided for them. But the Israelites had this problem. They always forgot what God had done for them in the past. They forgot how God had always taken care of them. So for the Israelites to ask for a king is kind of like a slap in the face to God. It's kind of like saying, no, you're really not good enough. Now, if I was God, I would be kind of upset with them, and out of spite, I would have picked for them a terrible king to be the first king. I would have picked for them somebody who had no character, that had no competency, kind of in a way to spite the Israelites, to say, okay, you want a king? I'll give you a really bad one. But God did something unique. He gave them a good king. King Saul, surprisingly, had a good background. He started out pretty well. They had a lot of things going for them, and I think it's important to see that. That God picked a king for the Israelites who has actually had a lot of potential. The Bible describes him, a lot of good characteristics of Saul they talk about in chapter 9. They say he was an impressive young man. It says that he describes him as a man who was without equal. He's described as a man who comes from a good family line. And it seems like he has everything going for him when God appoints him. And I think it's a good thing to pause and to look at that, that God, out of his compassion, still gave the Israelites a good king, even though they didn't deserve it. You see, the compassion of God, even when we do things wrong, he wants to still meet our needs and takes care of us. And I think that's important to see because I think sometimes we come to church with this idea, I'm going to come and I'm going to learn more things of what I should do and shouldn't do. And sometimes our focus should be primarily on God is just really good, and he's really kind, and he's really compassionate, and he goes out of his way to take care of us when we don't deserve it. But we see the faithfulness of God over and over again of how he deals with the Israelites. That his compassion is without rival, and it's just amazing what he does for the Israelites when they don't deserve it at all. So God calls Saul to be his king, and as I said, there's, there's a lot of good quali- characteristics about Saul. And then God does something extremely compassionate for Saul. He confirms as his king through the lot system. Some of you know that back in biblical times, they would cast lots to kind of pick a leader, and that was pretty common. It's kind of like pulling a name out of a hat. And God did that for Lot. Even though God had called him, he had confirmed his call through the prophet Samuel, God gathered all the Israelites together and said, now we're going to pick a king using the Lot system. Basically, 
They didn't pull a name out of a hat. They probably had another, uh, another way of doing it with maybe stones or with some pieces of wood where they would select from the 12 tribes of the Israelites who was going to be the next king. And they'd go through the 12 tribes and then they would select, then they selected the, probably the tribe of Benjamin, which Saul was from. And then the, all the names from the people of the tribe of Benjamin would go into the system. Then they would pull out a name and Saul's name was chosen. I mean, that's a pretty remarkable thing that out of the thousands and thousands of men that could have been picked for the next king, Saul's name was picked out. And God did that for Saul out of compassion because he knew that Saul was a little bit intimidated about being the next king. And God, I think it was his way of saying to Saul, I am with you. That my power and my sovereignty goes before you and goes behind you and I can protect you and I can do for you what you can't do on your own. But it's also a good way because when they did the lot system back in that time, it was a way to confirm to the people, this is the person chosen, so don't complain about it. This is going to be your next leader, so don't complain. And it's a powerful way of illustration to see how God can confirm his word and confirm his plans to his people. So you read the first few chapters of Samuel when it talks about Saul and you're pretty excited this is probably going to turn out well but quickly you see the demise of Saul you see that Saul has a lot of problems a lot of character flaws one of his biggest problems is probably fear and his fear causes him to be very impatient and it causes him to be not very obedient and it also causes him to be very jealous you see these three big issues that Saul has in his life of being impatient and not being very obedient and being very jealous. See, Saul is like most of us. Most of us have a hard time with being patient. We often don't see patience as something good. We see uh, waiting. We see waiting as wasted time or we see waiting as missed opportunities. But in the economy of the Bible, waiting is always something that can actually renew your strength. So in biblical terms, waiting is a good thing, but when you are waiting, you know it can be extremely difficult, and that was one of Saul's problems. He did not like waiting, and he did not like waiting for God. So in 1 Samuel chapter 13, the Israelites are ready to go to war, and Saul is ready to go to war. He's ready for a fight, and they are all set to go. Now Saul does something good. He inquires of the Lord to say, what time should we go to war? And the Lord responds to a priest and says, you have to wait until Samuel comes. And when Samuel comes, we're going to make a sacrifice. And after the sacrifice, we'll go to war. All right, Saul did the good thing. He inquired of the Lord. But then when he had to wait for Samuel to come, that's where he lost his patience. Took Samuel a little bit longer to get there to do the sacrifice than Saul was willing to wait for. So what did Saul do? He said, well, I'm not going to wait any longer. I'll just make the sacrifice. What difference does it make? I'll just do it. So Saul offered the sacrifice. After he's offered the sacrifice, then who shows up? Samuel shows up. See, the problem was it wasn't bad to make a sacrifice. It's just that God said, you're not the one who's supposed to do it. Samuel's supposed to be the one who does it. So in 1 Samuel 13, verse 11, we read what happened. We read the consequence where it says, But Samuel said to Saul, What is this that you have done? Saul replied, I saw my men scattering from me, and you didn't arrive when you said you would. And the Philistines are here at Mishmach, ready for battle. So I said, The Philistines are ready to march against us. 
and I haven't even asked the Lord's help, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering myself before you came. How foolish, Samuel exclaimed. You have not kept the command of the Lord, you've not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. Had you kept it, the Lord would establish your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom must end, for the Lord has sought a man after his own heart. The Lord was already appointed him to be the leader of the people because you have not kept the Lord's command. See, so see there that Saul's impatience caused him to jeopardize his future. Saul wanted to be in control of the future. He wanted to make the decision for battle to ensure that he had a good future. But in fact, he lost it simply because he was impatient and he wasn't obedient to God. I love this quote by John Tyson that's in your notes. It says, Seeking to act in our own time rather than waiting on God's doesn't accelerate the work of God in our lives. It corrupts it. And that's exactly what happened to Saul. He tried to interfere with the timeline that God had for his life. And instead of accelerating his future, he corrupted it. The next demise of Saul is that he was partially obedient to God. He kind of liked to pick and choose what he was going to be obedient for and kind of neglect the other part. Saul had this need to kind of control situations, especially when he got into battle. So in 1 Samuel 15, God commands Saul to go and fight against the Amalekites. And if you've been reading the Bible or if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that the Amalekites were a consistent enemy of the Israelites. And the Israelites just had this pervasive problem of not really being able to get rid of the Amalekites. They tried, but they never fully succeed. And one of the reasons that Saul was not successful against the Amalekites is because God told them after you defeat the Amalekites, don't take anything from them. Normally after a battle, you'd go in there and you'd take the spoils of war. And God said, don't take anything from them. Well, that was just a little bit too hard for Saul not to take anything. So what Saul did was he just took some of the things. He spinned it after he got busted by Samuel. Samuel said to him, what have you done? And Saul's response was, the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to make a sacrifice to God. See, what, Samuel, what Saul did was he killed all the really bad animals and he kept the really good ones. And when he was busted, he said, oh, I'm going to make those as a sacrifice to God. That's kind of like robbing a bank and saying, well, it's justified because I'm going to tie that money or I'm give some money away. And that's exactly what Saul does. He just kind of lies and manipulates it and says, well, I was going to make it for a sacrifice. But it didn't turn out well for him. So Samuel goes back to Saul again and he says, Why didn't you listen to the voice of God? God clearly told you. Why did you disobey him? And then God responds to Saul in 1 Samuel 15.10. says, The Lord said to Samuel, I am sorry that I ever made King Saul, for he has not been loyal to me and he refused to obey my commands. That's some pretty serious consequence of being partially obedient to God. I think sometimes in our culture we think I'm partially, I'm partially obedient, that's kind of good enough. God's not too impressed with partial obedience. He wants your whole heart. And that gets kind of tricky in our culture. The third thing that was a big demise of Saul was his jealousy. Saul was very jealous of David. David who would become the king that would follow Saul. But 
Saul was extremely jealous of David, and he probably should have been in some ways because jealous, well, no, he should not have been jealous, but you can understand why he was jealous because the people really, really liked David, and David was a very good warrior. And so the people had started to say that Saul had slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. The people of the Israelites were comparing Saul to David, and they were saying, wow, David is really a whole lot better. And Saul didn't do well with that at all. And I think sometimes we look at jealousy and say, well, what's the really big deal? Because we all experience some jealousy. I think most of us go through probably daily or weekly, we experience some form of jealousy. So I think it's easy to say, is it really that big of a deal? And I think you see with Saul and David, it is a really big deal. And it was actually one of the causes for the demise of Saul. He became so jealous of David that he actually tried to kill David several times. And the sad thing is, if Saul had had a different perspective about David, he would have realized that David was a blessing that God had given to him. That God had given him David to help fight the battles. That he gave David as a gift to him to be strategic. Instead, Saul was so jealous of David, he could not even see the benefits that David would bring to him. I think that's one of the reasons why it is so important to understand who we are and what God has created and called us to do so we are comfortable being who we are instead of comparing ourselves to other people and trying to be other people. So the question that you have to ask is, what happened to Saul? You know, he started out well. He started out really good. He had a lot of potential. He was chosen by God. He was anointed by God. The scripture says that, his, that God changed him, that God gave him a new heart. We see that Saul was empowered by God, loved by God. God proved to him that he was a leader. In fact, in 1 Samuel 9 verse 2, it says that Saul was an impressive young man. Actually, the actual Hebrew words for it is that he was really handsome. He was good looking. But the meaning of that is that he was impressive. And it's the same word that was used to describe David as it well to describe Moses. So you see, David and Moses and Saul all started as impressive young men that had potential. And so you have to sit there and say, what caused Saul to be so disobedient? Why did Saul end up being a failure? Why did Saul actually end up being a menace to God's people? I think it's important to pay attention to Saul as a warning to us of, don't go where Saul went. So for the next few weeks, or probably the rest of the summer, we're going to be in a series about spiritual formation. And we're going to talk about that over the summer. And one of the main verses, or chunks of verses I'm going to go back to is Ephesians 1, verse 3 to 8. Let me read it to you, what Paul says. Paul says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm, because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has shown us his kindness along with all wisdom and understanding. 
So you see from Paul's description, we're kind of set up in a pretty similar way that Saul was set up. That we've been chosen by God, that we've been blessed by God, that we've been called by God, that we've been equipped by God, that we have been shown God's kindness. We kind of have a similar start as Saul does if you're a follower of Jesus. And so it's so important to remember to finish well. See, I don't think Saul's biggest problem is fear. I don't think his biggest problem is a lack of obedience or jealousy. I think Saul's biggest problem is where does he look for comfort? See, to help us understand Saul, we have to go back to the day that he was coronated as king. On the day of his big coronation ceremony, when he's going to be, you know, made a king, Saul's hiding, and nobody can find him. So the people inquire before God, and this is a good little warning, don't think you ever get away with something by God. In 1 Samuel 10, verse 22, the people say to God, where is Saul? And God replies and says, he's hiding among the baggage. It's kind of funny, they inquire of God, and God tells them exactly where he is. And I think that's important to remember that God does tell other people when some people are lost so you can find them. And I think that should be an expectation of followers of Jesus that we should expect God to tell us when other people are lost. That God will give us discernment to know where people are at when they're lost or when they're hiding. We should expect that kind of discernment, especially right now in our time and our culture, that God would use us and give us great revelation and insight and discernment to know where people are lost and where they're hiding. Not to be used to be critical or judgmental, but to be used because God wants to find people that are hiding like Saul was. See, Saul was hiding because he was scared. He was fearful. He was intimidated to be the next king. Now, I like in 1 Kings 10, verse 22, how the King James Version translates that verse. It says, The Lord answered, Behold, he hath hid himself among the stuff. They call it the stuff. I didn't expect that from the King James Version to say stuff. I thought that was actually a misprint. But see, that's very good to understand that Saul was hiding among the stuff. Because if you go to the Hebrew word for stuff or for baggage, it means about 40 or 50 different words. It means things all the way from jewelry to, to armor to a bag to furniture to gear to pottery to clothing to jewels. It means about 50 different things. And I think that's important to see because we see where was Saul hiding he was hiding in the midst of things that made him feel secure and protected. Saul was hiding in the midst of things that gave him comfort. Where did Saul go when he was scared and intimidated? He went to the stuff. He thought, if I could put myself in the middle of all this stuff, I'll feel comfortable. I can hide in the midst of my pottery, in the midst of my furniture, in the midst of my jewels, in the midst of my weapons, in the midst of my bags. I can hide myself in the midst of all the stuff I have. And that's where he went to comfort. Where should he have gone? He should have went to God, God that day when he was feeling insecure. But he went to his stuff. I think it's so good to see that, that Paul, Saul went to stuff. And he didn't go to God when he was feeling intimidated. 
So you have to remember, Saul started out so well. He started out wanting to honor God. But he never overcame this compulsion that he had of fear and this desire to control things when he got fearful. See, I think we have to understand he never overcame doesn't mean that his fear and his propensity to fear absolutely went away. To overcome his fear meant that he had the ability to resist it. That he had the ability to stand up against his fear. Or he had the ability when fear came against him, he could go to God and not go to the stuff. That's what Saul never overcame. Because honestly, I don't think his fear was such a bad thing to have. Because each one of us deals with something in our life. Whether that's an addiction or something in the stuff list that sometimes brings deceives us to think that it will bring us comfort. And sometimes when we have a fear or something like that, God actually uses that in us to drive him to him, to draw us to him. But Saul didn't take advantage of his fear. His fear drove him to go to the stuff, the false things that would bring him comfort. Instead, if his fear would have drove him to God and say, God, I'm scared, I'm insecure, I'm worried about my future. How can you bring me comfort? His fear would have worked for his advantage. That's what God wanted to do in Saul's life. Because you have to remember in 1 Samuel, it talks about that God said, I want to change heart. And in 1 Samuel... 10 verse 6, God said he gave Saul a new heart. God gave him a new heart. But for some strategic reason, he wasn't completely delivered of the fear. And I think it's because God wanted to use that fear in his life, not to control him, but to make him more dependent on God, to make him more dependent on his relationship with God. But Saul just needed to learn how do you surrender your fear or your anxiety or your doubt on a daily basis. That's something that never got through to Saul is how to completely surrender. So that raises a question for all of us. What is the life of a Christian supposed to look like? What does the life of a Christian look like on a daily basis? So I ask that question because I think a lot of people come to Christ but they're pretty disappointed. I think a lot of people come to a relationship with God and after a while they find themselves saying, this isn't that satisfying. This isn't what I thought it would be. This isn't what I was hoping it would be. And usually when you feel unsatisfied, then you start to think, well, maybe God has done something wrong or maybe I've done something wrong. And it's usually at that intersection of being disappointed with God or being disappointed with another person that you become frustrated and you kind of really don't grow much in your faith. But what if the problem's not with God? And what if the problem's not with you? Maybe the problem is just your perception. Or maybe some expectations that you had of what a Christian life is supposed to look like. See, I think a better question to ask than is what's the goal of a follower of Jesus? What does life look like for a follower of Jesus? Or if I even increase the question a little bit and I said, what is our philosophy of discipleship? Or what is our philosophy of spiritual formation? Now you might think, wow, you're bringing that up right now. That, that sounds like a very long answer. 
That sounds like that could be a huge document of what is our philosophy of discipleship. Well, I think you can boil down a philosophy of what life looks like for a Christian into ten words. And that ten words comes from Matthew 9, verse 19, where Jesus looks at his soon-to-be disciples and says, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. That's in ten words of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. See, Jesus had a pretty clear objective. He's going to make you fishers of men. I love that verse because that verse can be divided into three parts. Number one, you follow Jesus. Number two, you let Jesus transform you. And number three, you become fishers of men. Three simple goals for the follower of Jesus. Number one, you follow Jesus. That's what we do. We follow Jesus, or to use the words of John 15, we abide in Christ. We follow Jesus. We spend time with Jesus. And as we're doing that, Jesus is the one who transforms our lives. I don't transform my life. Nobody else transforms my life. Jesus does that for me when I'm abiding with him, when I'm following him. That's where transformation comes from. And then what Jesus ultimately does is as we're following him, he's transforming our life. He's making us into the people he's created us to be. That's the whole goal of following Jesus is to give up the stuff and to follow Jesus. It's simply to simply be with Jesus. That's what our objective is. But for many people, they come to Christ or they think a relationship with Christ is just a way to avoid hell. I became a Christian because I don't want to go to hell. That's what a lot of people will tell you or what their definition is. I don't want to go to hell, so I better become a Christian. But if that's your only theology, if you become a Christian so you don't go to hell, you're going to miss out on a lot while you're on earth. If you're following Jesus just to not go to hell, you'll miss so much on this earth. And if you're following Jesus simply because you're trying to overcome something, you're missing out too. There's so much more. So I'm going to read you a great quote by John Piper who can put in a few sentences what would take me a couple hours to say. And I love this quote because, well, let me read it. It says, the gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. So that sounds like heresy. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. A lot of you think, now you're looking at the rest of the quote, reading it, because it sounds like heretical. And he says, it's a way to get people to God. The gospel is a way to connect people to God. It's a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. If we don't want God above all things, we've not been converted by the gospel. That's a good quote. See, that's the gospel's desire, is to make us desire God, to make us want to be with Jesus, to make us want to follow him, not just to avoid heaven, but to desire that relationship with God and that gives a good perspective, too, on our obstacles. Because God will destroy any obstacles that will prevent you from having a good relationship with him. 
And if anything is still in your life that appears to be an obstacle for you, maybe it's still there because God is using that to make you have a deeper relationship with him. Because the goal is God. The goal isn't just to go to heaven or the goal isn't just to get free from stuff. But it's to have that relationship with God. So what is the biggest challenge in your life? What is the biggest obstacle in your life? What's the one thing in your life that you're like, man, if God would do this for me, my life would be so good. My life would be so much easier. Just one thing. What is that one thing? What's that one thing you want God to do in your life so you can be a little bit different? I think all of us desire to be a little bit different in some way or the other. What is that one thing? See, often that one thing, if it's still in your life, can actually be a commodity for you. It can be something very valuable for you because it draws you to Jesus on a daily basis saying, I need help with this. I need you to help me to resist this temptation. Or I need you to help me to say no to this. Or I need you to give me the strength to deal with this challenge in my life. Sometimes that one thing that you want God to do could be actually a blessing in your life. Maybe it doesn't look like it today. But it could be something that God is using to drive you to a deeper relationship with him. Where you start to recognize that really, all I need is God. That's what you need. That's the goal of spiritual formation. That's the goal of discipleship. That we're like, all I want is God. See, I love the disciples' response to Jesus. In Luke 5, verse 11, after Jesus called them to follow him, in Luke 5, verse 11, it says, And as soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. That's the response to Jesus calling us. That we leave the stuff behind and we follow Jesus. You know, it might be until heaven where we actually leave everything behind and on a daily basis we're learning to give up some of that stuff that we hide in or we find comfort in. And that's the part of our journey that we go on in life that daily we're learning to leave behind the stuff. But that's my goal for all of us as we go through this whole journey of spiritual formation through the summer. And we learn practices of how do we follow Jesus? What needs to be part of our daily rhythm that we do that keeps us in good community with Jesus? It might be somewhere from we're going to talk about prayer. How do you pray? It might be talking about repentance. How do you repent for sins? How do you do that? What is that all about? It might be talking about dealing with your past. How do you deal with issues in your past that maybe you're resentful over, you're embarrassed over, you have shame over? How do you deal with things of your past? And we'll be talking about things like silence or solitude, meditating, having a devotional life that is actually something that you really look forward to, not something you do out of obligation. We're going to talk about that. How do you spend time with Jesus so that he transforms you into the person that he wants to make you? That's what we're going to do this summer as we go through this series on building a trellis. And I'm, I'm excited for it. 
I'm excited for it because we all want to be changed. We all want to be transformed. And we all want to live a life where all we have just one desire. And that's a deeper relationship with God. And it's possible. It's possible. That's just not some theory or something maybe. But that happens. And God wants to do that for each of us here and each of us listening online. He wants to do something in our life so that we have one desire. And that's a deeper relationship with God. So let's pray and ask him to do that as Jake and Libby come up to lead us in one song. God, we thank you that you are a good God. A loving God. And a faithful father. And God, as we celebrate Father's Day today, we thank you that you are a good, good God and a good, good father. And we thank you for the good gifts that you give to us. And I thank you that you've given us the gift of Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And Lord, help us to cherish that gift. God, I pray that you would draw us out of the stuff that we might be hiding in. Draw us out of the comfort that we might be receiving in the stuff so that we would just find our satisfaction and our joy and our security and our comfort by being in your presence. Lord, we desire that. And Lord, some of us have some things we need to overcome We have challenges in our life, and Lord, I pray that you'd give us the grace and the grit to do that this summer. That as we move forward in this series, Lord, that we would follow you so that we can be transformed and be the people you created us to be. God, we desire to be like your son, and we desire to do the things that your son did. God, would you give us the perseverance this summer? to really seek you and to really follow you and not to take this summer off and say I'll just I'll just get back to Jesus in the fall but that Lord we would jump in with both feet because Lord there's a lost and a hurting world that you've called us to be a reflection of your son too and we want to be those fishermen that you've called us to be so God as we Close in this final song, Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit would minister to each person here and each person listening to me. That you would do something in our heart, in our mind, in our body, in our soul to give us this desire to be with you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.